Welcome to From the City to the World. I'm your host, Vince Boudreaux, the president of the City College of New York. From City to the World is a show about how the work we're doing at City College matters to people across the city and throughout the world. We'll discuss the practical application of our research in solving real-world issues like poverty, homelessness, mental health challenges. And today, we're going to be talking about infrastructure in New York City and New York State. According to NPR.org, the Biden administration's $2 trillion infrastructure proposal would earmark $85 billion for existing public transportation systems in the United States. It would also designate $115 billion for bridges and roads, $80 billion for roadway, and $20 billion for improving road safety. Now, although the United States is considered to be one of the richest countries in the world, it ranked only 13th in infrastructure in 2019 World Economic Forum report. On today's show, we'll look at the Biden infrastructure proposal and how it would affect New York's public transportation system. And in particular, look at the kinds of opportunities this initiative presents to address some long-standing inequities in our transportation infrastructure. So we have two guests today, and they're both experts in transportation. In the first half of the show, we will speak to Dr. Robert Paswell, who's been involved in transportation operations, management, and planning for six decades. He's Director Emeritus of the University Transportation Research Center, that's the UTRC. That's a federally funded center that provides research and training to transportation professionals. He's a distinguished professor at City College and currently teaches transportation engineering and planning and transportation policy at CCNY's Grove School of Engineering. Our second guest today, which we'll be bringing in in the second half of the show, is Mr. Michael Gardner. He's the Chief Diversity and Inclusion Officer of the Metropolitan Transportation Authority, or the MTA, in the state of New York. And he's also the president of the founding chapter of 100 Black Men of New York. The New York chapter is the founding chapter of 100 Black Men, and he's, he's the president. So now, let me tell you a little bit more about our first guest. Dr. Robert Paswell, um, we call him Buzz, I'll probably refer to him as Buzz during the show, has worked in transportation for over 60 years. So I don't have to, time to do justice to his whole resume, but I'm going to give you a few of the highlights. In the late 1960s, Buzz helped write the Model Cities Transportation Program for Buffalo, New York. His plan contained significant improvements in service for the elderly. From 1964 to 1982, he's a professor of civil engineering at the State University of New York at Buffalo. Dr. Paswell organized and directed the Center for Transportation Studies and Research there. That center was responsible for a seminal study on the transportation of disadvantaged uh, people. In the 1980s, he served as the executive director or CEO of the Chicago Transit Authority, the second largest system in the United States. Um, he served on several transportation boards. He's been invited by the European Economic Community and by the Israeli, Chinese, and Japanese governments to discuss U.S. transportation programs um, in their countries. He's received the Medal for Superior Achievement from the Secretary of the U.S. Department of Transportation. He's listed in Who's Who in the World, Who's Who in America, Who's Who in Engineering, Who's Who in Finance and Industry. He's got a Bachelor of Science in Civil Engineering and a Master's in Science from Columbia University and a Ph.D., from Rutgers University, and I would be remiss if I didn't say that um, several years ago, more than several years ago, Professor Paswell served as the interim president of CCNY. So he's, he's part of my, my fraternity as well. Buzz, welcome to From City to the World. It's good to be here. You've taken all my speaking time. I doubt that. Um, I've heard <laughs> you speak. 
So I have a couple questions for you. And, and the first is, you are the uh, director emeritus of the CUNY Transportation Institute. And it's got a mission and mandate for a more inclusive and well-trained uh, workforce working in transportation infrastructure and, and, and a better um, a better running infrastructure. Can you talk to us a little bit about the work of the, of the Transportation Institute? Well, the Transportation Institute was founded before I came to, uh, to City College. In fact, uh, uh, when the University Transportation Research Center was going, I was invited to come, uh, set up by the ITS, I was invited to come and, and run that. It's, it's got two missions. One, it's, it's, to do, uh, it's to do state-of-the-art research in all modes of transportation, and secondly, to educate our students uh, so that they have good jobs in transportation and, and to create the link between practice and students and also between practice and for practitioners, what's going on in the future. Part of the, part of the, the tasks that we had uh, during the years that I, I ran UTRC was working with state agencies like New York State DOT, with the Regional Metropolitan Planning Organization to do training uh, to, and to do training for people in their jobs for, uh, for what is emerging in jobs. And, and other parts of training that, that we developed, one of the things that I, I took the initiative of and really felt uh, was, a, was a real step forward, uh, and this is uh, 15 or 20 years ago, actually from my vantage point, everything is more than five years, 15 or 20 years ago, when the MTA started buying uh, high-tech uh, rail cars and, and, and high-tech uh, buses or, or new generations, ones that were more computer-controlled rather than mechanically-oriented, I had talks with, with the labor unions, uh, uh, ATU and, 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 the, and the local the local transit, TWU, and, and explained to them that the, the changes coming down in the world were highly technical changes, and then unless they really began to understand the technology and how to apply it in their jobs, their jobs were going to be harder, or they might find there were jobs that would come down the path that they wouldn't qualify for. So we did training, and, and they liked it, and they, they had training written into their, their contract. And, of course, as we know now, the world is, is changing dramatically. And, and uh, this, this goes not only for why is the new infrastructure bill so important and what has COVID done to sharpen uh, why we need to look at next, next generation stuff, but uh, it's, it's that, uh, as, as I like to say, technology doesn't wait for anyone. All those people that are inventing iPhones or, or uh, artificial intelligence or, or the next generation of, of location modeling or something, they're not sitting in a, in a corner waiting for City College or the MTA or uh, New York City DOT to say, give me an invention. They're inventing things, and the technology has to be adopted by, uh, by the agencies. And we have to train. We have to get there first to train our students to do that. You know, I've said a lot, but let me, let me put it in some order. And the order is there's new technology out there that's, that's making understanding how and why people travel, where they travel, how to measure how they travel. Also, there's, there's new technology that says, how can we design and plan infrastructure? How can we use artificial intelligence and, and locational mapping? and, and uh, virtual reality to plan and build new structures 
very differently than we did before? And how can we use new data analysis to, to get a better handle on these incredibly complex new infrastructure projects, all of which will bring new infrastructure projects in quicker and at lower cost? They're, they're adopting these new methods in Europe. We have to uh, bring them here in the United States. I know the MTA has begun to look at some of these. It, it's this it's this tight link between students and the profession. We're training our students to be engineers and architecture school architects, planning school planners, business school administrators, but they're all using new tools. And the importance uh, of, of the education component is that we have to be on top of those new tools to make sure that the students that we have are prepared for lifelong careers in the infrastructure industry. I want to circle back to to that specific aspect, the the new training and the new tools. But before I get there, you talked a lot about what new what would be new in infrastructure development, artificial intelligence, uh, you know, the integration of smart technology. What will be different in an upgraded infrastructure from the perspective of somebody who's riding a subway or a bus or or, or something like that? Well, the the, infra- the infrastructure that they see. Well, they'll still see trains and buses, hopefully. Hopefully, our, and, and I believe our city is going to come back strong. Uh, that's, 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 a, that's another discussion. Sometimes else, um, I do not believe any of the naysayers that say it won't be there. So we have to be prepared for New York version two. The version one was the New York of, of uh, February a year ago. Version two is the New York of February next year and on. And it's going to be there and people are going to be there. And, and people want to be there and we're going to have to move them there. What you're seeing on, you're, you're seeing sort of a nexus. Uh, and everyone, uh, everyone lives off their cell phones. And, uh, f- for any of you, I have grandchildren and children. For any of you who have children and grandchildren, you know that their life is, is linked to their screen. Their decisions are made by what they see on their screen. What do their friends say? What, where are they going to eat? Where are they going to meet? And yes, if they're going to take transportation, when's the next train coming? When's the next bus coming? And can I pay my fare with my smartphone? Which you can do now with, with, with the new OptiCard and, and other things. So you're going to see information-based decisions. You're going to get on the train. You're going to see screens with information about the system, where to transfer, how the trains are running, delays, not delays. You're going to get outside the station. Some of the stations already have that outside the station information, but it's going to be an information loaded world. Secondly, okay, let's, let's, let's switch from the user to the operator. The operator is going to have real time information and we'll be able to organize the routes, their scheduling, the train loadings. Perhaps you're going to have time of time of day fare. Charging, that's something they haven't talked about yet in fair charging, time of day char- fair charging based on. Me- meaning that you, you pay less if you're riding um, outside of rush hour? Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. Off okay. Exactly. So, so uh, what, you're, what, you're, what you're going to see is much better control, and the managers will have much better control. So, if there's an incident, they'll be able to respond much more quickly to it. So, it's the idea that we're getting what's called big data. Everybody sees, knows what big data is. And it's simply, what big data is, 
is you collect every piece of data you can. Where is everybody? Where are their cell phones? How many people are on the train? How many people went? What's the history of travel on that day or that hour? The computer mashes that all up and spits out some numbers to you. That's the job of the, the professors and the analysts is to, is to write the equations that get to, to, to do the analysis. And when you're ready to make a decision, you ask the computer, and you probably can ask them now using English. You don't have to type in anything or, or any language that you speak. And an answer will come back to you. Uh, I have a delay on bus route five going up Riverside Drive because there was an accident. What should I do and how should I change? And rather than have somebody call into the terminal in the depot and look at where all their buses are located, you'll get an instantaneous response and you'll be able to reroute and reschedule and keep everybody moving quickly. So, so it's the idea that information is there and we can use it and we're learning to use it better. It's going to make all the difference. Let me circle back to, I mean, you've, you've begun to answer the question a little bit in, in your last response, but you talked earlier about this tight relationship between the needs of the industry and, and the output of our educational institutions. Where do we need to, to build educational capacity? In what ways do we need maybe to, to hurry to, to keep up with the needs of, of evolving infrastructure technology as we, as we develop uh, people to work in that sector? One is, is we, need, we need to continue to do research on it. So we need to find, get funding and, 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 and do innovation. I mean, the MTA has paid for some research. I'm, I'm embarrassed to say at Cornell and, and, and the Technion, uh, they should have come to City College, their local university, but that's, that's just for this radio station listeners. But professors are working on that. Students are working on that. I have, I have a student now I'm working on on a uh, program for the disabled. It's the inventiveness and the research that goes into the testing of ideas and testing of applications that can be used. The applications that you have on your smartphone uh, have come from testing, people collecting data and, and putting it on. So it starts out, it's very different from the students today, from my slide rule days, is that the students today we're coming in, live off their smartphones. And every professor knows that because every professor, when we used to, in the old days, we used to have classes in place, would go into their class and look around and first make an announcement, put down your smartphones, I'm going to start to lecture. And 10 minutes into the lecture, would point to two or three students to put down their smartphones and that would continue on and on. The students might claim they're taking notes. Maybe they were, maybe they weren't. They live on that because they live there, all their information that guides their lives on that, including technical information. And now if we think if we can put onto the smartphone information that's of use uh, in, in decision-making, should I travel now? Should I go this way? Look at the success of things like Uber, uh, or which have taken trips away from transit, or New Jersey Transit had a automated uh, card. You could, you could pay your fare from New Jersey transfer you get on. Now you can do that on, on the MTA. I mentioned all this before. It's, it's changing. Our students come prepared to learn that, and it's up to us to stay ahead of our students. So it's up to the professors to be engaged with the agencies and to be engaged with the, and to understand these new methods to do that. 
We're very fortunate, and here comes the advertisement. We're very fortunate to have in the civil engineering department incredibly smart professors who are working in freight and decision theory and in, in, in analytics and in electric vehicles who are already working in the future that can bring this to our students. You know, it's no secret to anybody who's been paying attention to the news these last couple of weeks that that the the administration in Washington has, in a really focused way, turned its attention towards infrastructure. At the beginning of the show, I talked a little bit about how that plan is projected to break down, but it is more significant um, money devoted to infrastructure than anything we've seen in decades. And and so, I know the plan's not finalized now, but as you as you think about um, what we're hearing from the plan, what do you think the impact uh, in New York City is going to be from the Biden infrastructure plan? I think the the most important impact is the sustained support of public transportation. In fact, Biden is committed to uh, supporting public transportation throughout the country, and that includes not just subways and buses, but includes Amtrak and, and hopefully a new generation of high-speed rail, which is a a, top, a whole topic for another program. But I think, I think the fact is that uh, there is a new generation of support for public transportation is incredibly important because it's not just the MTA that, that finds balancing its books every year very difficult. Running public transit is very expensive, uh, but it serves the public good. And if you were to do a real economic study of public transit, you would find that the linkages that it may the ability of an employer, let's say in, in downtown New York, to have a workforce of a diverse workforce of jobs and people available to them within 30 to 45 minutes is an incredible advantage. That's why you have this agglomeration of jobs in the center of New York. You can hire not only the broker, but the person who cleans their office and serves their lunch and sells their watches and, and, and does everything else, all, all within range. And conversely, for a worker, a worker can say, if I can live near a subway station or near a bus line, I can go find a job. So it sustains and helps generate an economic balance. And, and if you're, if you look at economic models or input output models, you'll find that this is, this is really critical. And all of the large cities in the United States have public transit systems. Public transit systems, for some reason, uh, people, people love their cars, so they don't want to support they support their highways, and they want to support their public transit systems. If the public transit systems create more of an economic benefit, they create certainly more of an environmental benefit and uh, allow the city to organize itself in much more economic ways. You had said earlier, talking about some of the skeptics that think, you know, we're not going to be back. You, you were pretty clear in saying you think we're going to be back strong. Um, but I, I do want to ask a little bit about what you think the lasting impact of the pandemic has been. I mean, in, in educational institutions across the country, people have moved to remote learning. Jobs are, are, you know, more and more people are doing distance work. And so how do you think, I mean, do you think this is, this is simply an accommodation of the pandemic that'll go away as soon as we're able to, to, to travel? Or, or, or do you think the infrastructure of the future has to build into it the expectation that there'll be more telecommuting and distance learning and that kind of thing? I think in the short term, there's going to be more telecommuting. 
I think I think because people have gotten used to it. And I think because there's a tremendous fear in the public of going back to crowded workspaces, of getting on crowded trains. Although we know, and the science has shown, that subways and trains are not, that the pandemic isn't carried on that, and especially on the MTA where they do, do so much cleaning. I ride the trains all the time. I ride the buses all the time. Of course, I'm also vaccinated, so I say that with a smile. But it's, it's safe. Uh, people have to feel safe to, to go to their workplaces, and, and the workplaces are going to change. Employers are thinking, hey, I can save my real estate bill if I have uh, fewer square feet of office space and let people work at home. But what makes New York great? What made ancient Rome great? What made ancient Athens great? What made medieval London great? People wanted to agglomerate. People wanted to be together to work, to, 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 to have a marketplace of ideas, which you can't have over Zoom. All you can have is people waiting their turn to yell or, or clicking on the question part. Uh, people want to go from their office to go out and get coffee, have lunch, go to the theater, go shopping. They want, they want that, that busyness that's, that's, that's the heart of New York. And, and all you have to do is read the books of ancient Rome and, and read Josephus, who, who describes ancient Rome, saying he, he once stepped out of his doorway and, and nearly got run over by all the people walking back and forth that uh, he couldn't believe, believe the crowds. That's what people want. And I think, I, I think all of us, many of us who are in New York, are in New York because it's New York, not because New York is a less dense city, but because you can walk out your door and, and literally get anything, see everyone, see all sorts of behavior and everything else, and have a marketplace of ideas and meet with your friends. It's a great place. London is a great place. Paris is a great place. They aren't going to disappear from sight. If they do, a big part of civilization is going to go with them. Oh, agreed. Let me change gears just a little bit. Um, you know, talking about the Biden administration's infrastructure proposal in the Gothamist uh, a little while ago, our new transportation secretary, uh, Secretary Buttigieg, said that there is racism built in the highway system in America. Can you talk a little bit about? Um... I got to get started because it's a, I give a lecture on that, and I say the United States looks the way it does today: suburbanization and and the results of suburbanization, which change how Congress looks and the laws they create, all came out of the highway program. Highway program started in, in 1916 when the Fed started supporting highways because they felt we needed farm-to-market roads and post roads. They, the Feds continued to give money to the states. They created state departments of transportation, which are the biggest recipients in each state of federal dollars, probably other than Medicaid or something like that. So the, that, the advent of the car and the impact of World War II on housing and the, and the dissemination of housing from the central city, which ran out of good housing, to suburbs by creating cheap loans and, and property available to developers, created these, these great suburbs. The continuing, the, the Eisenhower 56 highway bill, which created the Highway Trust Fund, which said that for 90 cents on the dollar, the feds will pay for you to build interstate programs for great dispersal things. The interstate program continued with rings around the cities, which created suburban rings, and on and on. It's part of every planning course, every sociology course, every, every transportation course. But we look the way we do, 
and think the way we do because we we were a country that started in in the late 18 early 1900s as a rural country with with some urban bases we later by 1950 1940 we become primarily urban with minority rural uh and uh and more people live in the cities and by 1980 we had become primarily urban but more people lived in suburban areas and in central cities and that's really changed the culture the sociology the philosophy of the country that's a that's a that's a discussion that you should now bring on the, the brilliant sociologists and 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 other and architects that we also have at city college which is a great place to live and to think let me push you a little bit on this i mean if this was a kind of social ordering of america that was built on infrastructure is is this a moment when infrastructure offers the prospect of reversing that i mean is is there an infrastructure answer to the infrastructure problems created by the highway system the answer is coming probably because of the environment and the the generation is younger than me which is probably every generation are much more concerned about the environment than than my gen my generation was concerned about the environment moynihan uh created uh, began to link uh, highway building to to the environment and said that if, if the highways uh, foul up the environment more, you can't build them. So we became much more aware of the environment uh, at the 1990 and 2000, and, and our designs are, are looking at that. But the the generations after mine, they don't necessarily want to own cars. They're, they're for the environment. And they want to live in the cities. They want to live in, in, in places where groups of people like them live. They want transit, but they also want bikes. They want to be able to walk. They want safe streets. So we're going to see a restructuring of the environment, of, of the physical environment. Uh, we're going to see restructuring of that that's based on a new set of values that's coming up from younger generations, which is, which is the way it should be. And hopefully younger generations that are, that are determined to do what they can to slow down global warming and, and other crises that we're, that we're facing. So I'm very optimistic about that. And I think the, the new bill can do that by focusing on transit, by looking at how they support highways, and, uh, and by focusing not only on transit, but on the development aspect, transit-oriented design, and, by, and in highways, not on building highways, but in building safe streets, building bicycle paths, building more pedestrian-safe communities, more towards an environmentally sensitive environment. Yeah, you know, I mean, in order to get there, you know, one of the things that's going to have to happen politically is is the balance between urban policy and, and rural policy needs to be redirected towards urban areas. If you, if, if you think about the way policy is made in the national right. legislature, you know, the, the people representing sparsely populated rural areas have a vastly disproportionate voice in policy making is this are, are the are the political stars aligned in such a way that we can get a more impactful and coherent um set of urban policies do you think uh, i would love to answer that question yes but the answer <laughs> is we really don't know let me let me take a little worry we're really not rural we're really suburban and but low density to high density suburban. So uh, that's, 
And and you're right. The more is changed by people living in those areas. All the things by being in isolated communities, uh, everything, all these factors that, that come out of that uh, are sort of are, are sort of what characterize what our culture looks like today. And to know what our culture looks like today, you just have to pick up the paper or listen to the news for five minutes. Our hope is that this will change as uh, as more of these of these younger people uh and and they and look at all the marches we've had over the last few years for just about everything as these younger people uh want to take control of the of their immediate physical environment as well as the global environment i think the more serious question you're asking is politically can this be done have the forces of suburbanization and isolation become so strong controlling state legislators legislatures or other things, that no matter how many houses you build or transit systems you build, it won't make any difference. And that remains to be seen at, at how successful people are carrying their programs out at, when we have voting. Mm-hmm. Well, listen, I don't want to bury the advert. You had two advertisements uh, in, in what you said. And the first is City College is a great place to learn Absolutely. these things. Um, and the second advertisement, which is a little bit more subtle, but you talked about going around on subways and buses because you're vaccinated. I don't want to miss an opportunity to say when your turn comes up, and if you're an adult in New York State, your turn has come up, get vaccinated. City College is currently a vaccination site, and um, we are really pleased to be able to serve just not just the City College community, but also northern Manhattan, the Harlem's, Inwood, Washington, South Bronx. So get vaccinated. Um, now I'm happy to say Michael Garner is joining our conversation. Mr. Garner is the Chief Diversity and Inclusion Officer at the Metropolitan Transportation Authority, the MTA, here in New York. It's his job to make sure that minority and women-owned businesses get their fair share of contracts with the MTA. Under his leadership, the MTA has also improved its hiring of black, Latino, and Asian workers by 20%. Uh, Mr. Garner has designed a minority and women-owned business development program that continues to break down barriers for minority women and disadvantaged and service-disabled veteran-owned businesses in New York State. Um, During his tenure at NYCHA, the New York City School Construction Authority, and now the MTA, Mr. Garner and his, his teams have been responsible for more than $12 billion in payments to New York State City minority and women-owned businesses. He is also the president of the historic founding chapter, the New York chapter of 100 Black Men, Um, and that's an organization that's worked for decades to overcome racial barriers to economic, social, and political injustice. Um, He has a bachelor's degree in business administration and management from the State University of New York College at Buffalo. Mr. Garner continues to work to strengthen the Harlem community with hands-on involvement and activism. He's a member of the Canaan Baptist Church and is president of the founding chapter of 100 Black Men in New York City. He secured the organization's corporate headquarters on 125th Street in Harlem. With an eye still on community empowerment, he raised $2 million in funding during COVID-19 and brought 16,000 hot meals from Black-owned restaurants and donated them to first responder hospitals, churches, and shelters. Mr. Garner, I'm really grateful you could join us. Welcome to From City to the World. Thank you, President Abujo, and let me just thank you for your outstanding leadership in in, uh, directing one of the most uh, esteemed, prestigious uh, uh, colleges in the country. And I I just want to simply say, from a Harlemite, thank you. 
Uh, well, listen, from another Harlemite, I'm, I'm, I'm deeply pleased at, at the, the sustaining relationships we have with you, the organizations you work in, and with, and with all of our um, allied uh, institutions and, and, and groups. It's a real pleasure to be here with you. Um, let me start off by asking you to discuss how the pandemic has impacted the MTA, both in terms of the health and stability of the system and the way uh, its social effects are visible in the operation of the MTA and the ridership and the like. Well, for the first time in history, uh, COVID-19 has done something that no other um, item had done, and that's shut down the system on a daily basis from 1 a.m. to 5 a.m. because we had to disinfect all of our subways and all of our subway stations. And so this COVID-19, um, as we uh, begin to get back to the, the new version of normal, um, the importance of the MTA in moving our customers to their, their jobs and other places, uh, we are the most vital um, state agency in this region because once the MTA shuts down, um, it is an adverse impact on all New Yorkers who, who simply rely on our system. Um, and we must get back to operating North America's largest transportation network, serving 5,000 miles and moving um, uh, 6.2 million people on a daily basis to their jobs and other places uh, that they are, in fact, moving to. And so um, we know that we, we must once again get back to operating our system 24-7, 365. Yeah, those are really impressive numbers as far as the, the the scope of MTA operations. Can can I just ask? You know, I know that one of the huge burdens on the system has been the need to disinfect all the subway cars and the buses on a on a nightly basis. There's new uh, information coming out of the CDC that that confirms what scientists have been saying, which is that this virus really doesn't spread. On surfaces, it's much more of an airborne virus than we than we had imagined. Does that have any impact on on the way the MTA is approaching the need to do, for instance, these these nightly cleanings, or, or is that a regime that's going to continue? Do you think? So, so d- during the apex of COVID, we were shut from uh, 1 a.m. to uh, 5 a.m. Now we are shut down from 3 a.m. to 5 a.m. But I would ask, I mean, is it a, a bad thing that we are cleaning all of our subways and all of our subway stations um, every day and disinfecting them. Uh, I, I would imagine that that, that that is a great thing. But, but I, I, I mean, we are, we are hearing our customers, and we will make an informed decision in conjunction with the governor as to uh, when the uh, shutdown will, will, in fact, go away. I would fathom that it's going to happen uh, when the infection rates uh, subside and we, we achieve our, our herd immunity um, as we move, move forward. But I'm, I'm really, uh, as a regular subway user, I'm really enjoying the quality of the subways and stations being cleaned. Yeah, no, I want to be clear. I think, I think the workers in the MTA have done just heroic work to, to um, really to address the outward boundaries of, of, of the fears that people have about, about riding the subway. You're right. It's, they're, the, the stations look beautiful. The cars look beautiful. Um, it's really been, been a, a benefit. Um, Let me say also that, um, that just because there is an emergency uh, declaration does not mean that the MTA should not do business with uh, New York State certified minority-owned companies. Mm-hmm. 
And so since the time that we've uh, hired uh, companies uh, to clean our system every night in the subways and buy COVID-19 supplies and products, we've spent $98 million or 32% of our COVID-19 uh, products and services went to New York State certified minority women-owned businesses. Oh, that's wonderful. That's terrific. I mean, particularly given the fact that in many, many cases, the, the, the people who have been compelled to, to, to ride the subway, whether or not they're nervous, uh, are, these are essential workers, often coming from communities of color. And, and so it is appropriate that, that the, the subway system and the, the transportation system that is being made safe for these people also is being made safe by companies that represent these communities as well. Yes. So I imagine this is a really exciting time for someone uh, like yourself who works in uh, major infrastructure development. I mean, you must be looking at the discussion at the national level as, as something that really probably only comes around once in someone's professional life. And I wonder if you could talk about how the ongoing national infrastructure conversation is likely to affect the MTA and how the MTA is positioning itself within that conversation. Yes, so we, we are enthusiastically uh, waiting for uh, the $2.1 trillion infrastructure funding to come down because um, we, we, we know and understand that in order for you to run an effective system, that there must be investment and the investment in infrastructure. And so uh, for the first time, as you indicated, in a long time, we are starting to anticipate and have those conversations as to how we can modernize the system, how we can, re we can replace tracks and signals. Uh, if you haven't noticed that we are operating our subway cars at a faster speed, mm -hmm. and so that, that is, is only a result of um, uh, infrastructure enhancements with signals and tracks. And so to, to have the ability to buy new subway cars and new uh, green buses, um, it is a very exciting time uh, for the MTA of having resources and allocating those resources as we improve efficiencies and as we modernize the system. The Biden administration's mantra throughout the campaign and, and after that has been you know, this phrase, build back better. And in the realm of transportation infrastructure, what is it that we need to do better? You just mentioned, you know, uh, new generation buses and, and, and that kind of work. But as you as you project out at the kinds of things new infrastructure should, could support, what does a new, modernized, um, better built infrastructure look like for New York City? It, it will be meaning that um, that our system will be accessible to all of our customers, including uh, the, the, the handicapped population with uh, new escalators and new, and new elevators, uh, making sure that we modernize the system like with a simple thing like countdown clocks, uh -huh. having efficient countdown clocks in each one of our, our subway stations, making sure that we have uh, express bus lanes uh, that can shorten the, 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 uh, the commute with, with our customers who are riding and, and rely on our buses, uh, to modernize stations, uh, to make stations uh, more greener, uh, to enhance our, our art in certain subway stations and our, our Long Island Railroad and Metro North stations. And so um, ma making sure that we have 
a modern, highly technical station uh, that is uh, improving and enhancing the rider's um, experience. So apart from the position you hold at the MTA, you are, as I mentioned earlier, the president of 100 Black Men of New York. And so I know that questions of racism and disparities of all kinds weigh heavily on your mind. So I'd like to ask you the question, same question I asked Buzz a little earlier. Um, I wonder if you could comment on Secretary Pete Buttigieg's um, remarks that racism is built into America's highway system. And, and, and maybe does that comment actually have implications for the entire transportation infrastructure of the United States? So, so absolutely. So um, a few years ago, I spoke in Washington in Congress during the, the Congressional Black Caucus. And the topic was transportation as a civil right. And we know and understand that in a lot of places in this country that we live in, there are transportation deserts that uh, access to efficient transportation is not enjoyed by everyone. And so we, we need to make sure that those uh, policies that were set in place in a biased manner, that we somehow uh, re- revisit those policies to make sure that, 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 um, that, that we can correct those policies. And, and, and Buzz indicated about when, after World War II, when GIs came back home and there was a, cer- a sudden growth uh, in the suburbs. But I'm reminded that a lot of inner city black neighborhoods were, were uh, disrupted um, because uh, they they wanted to build these uh, highways, and they went through certain black neighborhoods that destroyed those neighborhoods: New Orleans, um, Buffalo, New York, uh, the Bronx, the the uh, the, the Cross Bronx, uh, basically disrupted minority neighborhoods. And so, how do how do we we uh, we in, in, in fact eradicate that? Uh, one by making sure that there are no transportation deserts, two, uh, making sure that the business of transportation are afforded by all. Um, so what do you mean? Um, I'm saying that the, the MTA has a $16 billion annual budget, and we purchase $6 billion um, a year in goods and services. And so making sure that those opportunities are afforded to minority women-owned businesses like any other company. And so if you look at the, the, the MTA, there are a lot of international civil construction companies doing work here because of the size of our projects. One being Eastside Access, where we, we are linking Penn Station to Grand Central. So if you're traveling in from uh, Long Island, you, you no longer have to exit the, the uh, train and pay a second fare for the subway because now Eastside Access is going to give you the opportunity to either exit at Penn Station or exit at Grand Central. That's a $12 billion project. When you talk about uh, Second Avenue subway in Nassau and Suffolk counties, that's a $2 billion project that we are building a third track uh, to ease uh, some of the congestion um, in, in, in Long Island, in Nassau, and Suffolk. If you talk about the Second Avenue subway, extending that subway line from 96th Street up to 125th, you're talking about a $8 billion project. And so it is, it is our quest uh, to ensure that taxpayer 
uh, driven dollar projects are awarded in a cost-effective manner because its cost is, is uh, being financed by, funded by taxpayers, but also those contracts are awarded in an in inclusive manner. And why is that important? It's important because we know and we understand that access to government contracts equal job creations um, in the Black, Latinx communities. It also means home ownership opportunities, better health care options, and, and better educational opportunities. Mr. Garner, you've worked a great deal. Uh, you talked a, a lot about working with MWBE um, contractors and, and, and providers and, and, and the great successes you've had um, in that realm. But, you know, when Congressman Rangel came to City College as our as our statesman residence, and the very first conversation I had with him four years ago, he said, I have a project, and it's to, um, you know, you look at the individuals involved in in infrastructure, um, it, you know, working in infrastructure, and, and particularly the individuals involved at increasingly skilled positions as you move up the hierarchy. And he said, it's just simply not representative. We There, there are... Um, so many fewer uh, people of color, particularly as you move into leadership positions. And so he started with us a project that we're still working on to build an infrastructure training facility here on, on campus. We've got you know a lot of support from um, local elected officials. Congressman Espiat has been a strong, strong advocate of this. But I wonder if, as you look at the MTA, um, could you discuss a little bit what the the scope of its diversity challenges may be and, and, and the work that your office is doing to, to overcome that? Uh, absolutely, and certainly. Let me, let me just uh, give uh, thanks to one of the greatest leaders in the history of this country, and that's the Congressman uh, Charlie Rangel, and his brilliance of recognizing that there is a major infrastructure project that will be coming through his former district. Uh, and how... Uh, that project can be more in, in, inclusive. And having the ability to engage City College in that, that led to the, the MTA and our third-party partners uh, affording paid college internship opportunities for students at City College. And let me just say this, that I had a conversation this morning with our construction people of how that can be expanded to all of our capital construction projects. And the reason why that's, that's important, and, and you just mentioned it, uh, this, this kind of uh, program, which will link uh, a college students' academic experience to real-world construction projects, gives us the opportunity to recruit, develop, and train a diverse future workforce. Because a lot of these students who are exposed to our capital construction projects, they are going, going to have exposure uh, both with the private corporations and, and the MTA. And so once they graduate, they are going to have an option. Um, do I want to work in the private sector or do I want to work for government? Because uh, they have been exposed to uh, key decision makers who are going to have a hand in interviewing them. Uh, once they graduate from college. And that's, and, and that's going to, to determine whether or not they're going to graduate and transition into a, uh, a viable career, or if they're going to graduate and have to pop the pavement uh, looking for a job. I would say that it is incumbent upon government 
working with great leaders like Congressman Charlie Rangel and, and uh, uh, yourself to uh, uh, afford these uh, quality students the opportunity to be exposed, to be paid, and to transition into uh, viable careers. We are, uh, first of all, so grateful over the years that 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 you've been um, such an eager host for our students. But as this Wrangell project ramps up, I think um, bringing our students into projects like the Second Avenue Subway, which is happening, you know, in the neighborhood that many of our students are coming from, is going to be uh, uh, very important. So I'm going to take this point of personal privilege to uh, uh, put a note. In, in, in the back of your mind that, that you and I need to get together and talk about this. Definitely, uh, definitely. And, and, and keep in mind that the MTA's new five-year capital plan totals $54 billion, $54 billion over the next five years. That is a significant number, isn't it? So let's talk a little bit about the Second Avenue subway system uh, uh, project that, that, you're, that you're working on. I know this is one of the big agenda items that you've had for for quite a while, and and when you started recruiting students uh, from City College to intern in this project, one of the things you said to me is, "We want the people working on this project to look like the people living in the neighborhood that the project will serve." And and I think that that's such a it's such a strong statement of how a project like this needs to respond. To the or to the system needs of the MTA, but the social needs of the community around it. And so I wonder if you could talk about how you imagine the Second Avenue Subway project is going to impact the Harlem neighborhood that it's taking place in, and then how it is going to affect the system. Yes. Yeah, so you know the the uh, original groundbreaking for the Second Avenue Subway happened back in in the 1960s under the leader, the leadership of Governor Nelson Rockefeller. And Governor uh, Andrew Cuomo uh, made a promise that he was going to finalize uh, the Second Avenue subway, and he was going to host a subway ride on New Year's Day of that year. And, and, and guess what happened? We hosted a subway ride opening up um, 96th Street on Second Avenue subway, and that project uh, was so dynamic. Because all of the the owners of real estate that that subway that Second Avenue subway encompasses, uh, the value of their property increased, and so now focusing on this project from 96th Street to 125th Street, the MTA wants to be a great corporate partner because we want to make sure that at the end of the day that that you have a brand new capital construction project that is going to improve transportation in your neighborhood. But we want to make sure that all of the residents, the students, uh, the businesses are, are going to benefit uh, from that project as well. And so it's not going to happen in my lifetime. It's not going to happen in uh, your lifetime. But the original mission of the Second Avenue subway was to build it up to 125th Street and then take it all the way over to the west side of Manhattan. And so that 2nd Avenue subway will be a feeder into all of the subway lines, the 1 and the 9, the A, the D train, the 2 and the 3, and the 4 and the 5. That's, that's the master plan, but that's probably not going to happen in my lifetime. And so that 2nd Avenue subway is going to have a great impact 
on society of Harlem and also with, with the, the, the economy, because it's going to afford other types of opportunities, um, in employment, vendors, goods, your hardware store, your restaurants. And so we, we are uh, enthusiastically uh, looking forward to making sure that not only the transportation experience uh, is enhanced, but the residents of uh, Harlem benefit from this uh, capital construction project. Wow, it's really a stunning vision. I, I, I didn't know that it was going to go uh, to the West. I regret I won't be around to see it, but um, what, a, what, a, what a great plan. Is there, you know, I imagine when something like this comes into a neighborhood like 125th Street, you think about all the, the, the secondary development that's likely to happen around the, the subway stations as people are, you know, now coming out from from the MTA and, you know, there are, you know, shops, restaurants, you know, all the kinds of things that service um, a commuter population, it, it seems like would have a real great opportunity. Are there ways to make sure that the people who are currently living in the neighborhood, running businesses in the neighborhood, are, are going to be beneficiaries of that uh, economic development rather than be squeezed out by gentrification? This is something we see in neighborhood after neighborhood. And, and what are your thoughts on, on making sure that local residents are, are not displaced by economic opportunities that others grab up? Yes, that 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 uh, concept that that uh, you are referring to uh, is a new concept, but it's not a new concept. But it is, it is getting a lot of focus now, and that's called uh, TODs, uh, transportation oriented development. Because once you build a transportation hub, that means that you can also build housing, and shops and restaurants will in fact follow. I would say that in order to ensure that residents are not displaced. It has to be a real focus on affordable housing. And so we have a election happening this year, mayoral election. Um, I would say be, before you uh, make a decision as to who you're going to vote for, you, you, you got to ask those hard questions. Like what, what is your plan uh, to expand affordable housing and to create opportunities for residents who have lived in those areas that they are not going to be uh, now kicked out. And so that's that's a real question, because I tell you, if it had not been for NYCHA and other affordable housing programs, Harlem would not be as diverse as it is now. And that's the only thing that's keeping Harlem as a diverse community. Well, I mean, really something to keep in mind, all of these, the various strands of the conversation we've been having, it really boils down to one thing. We're at a moment of tremendous opportunity in the realm of infrastructure. Infrastructure development can be a moment when, from an educational standpoint, from an inclusion standpoint, rewriting the wrongs of, of, of earlier infrastructure development, this is really a moment when infrastructure can be turned into a, a really powerful tool for economic opportunity for social justice and for the preservation of our neighborhood. So I want to thank uh, both of our guests today for, for leading us through such an extraordinary conversation. I want to thank uh, Dr. Robert Paswell, Buzz Paswell, who is Distinguished Professor at City College at the Grove School of Engineering um, and the Emeritus Director of the University of Transportation Research uh, Institute. And also special thanks to Mr. Michael Gardner, who is the Chief Diversity and Inclusion Officer at the Metropolitan Authority, the MTA in the state of New York, and the President 
of the founding chapter of the New York chapter of 100 Black Men. I'll thank both of you gentlemen. It was a really um, interesting and engaging conversation you led us through. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Thank you both. The show is produced by Angela Harden and yours truly, Vince Boudreaux. I am your host, Vince Boudreaux, the president of the City College of New York. I'll see you. Hope you tune in um, to the next episode of From City to the World. Thank you.